Welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show, where we discuss commercial real estate. This is your host, Ishai Breslauer. Here we meet every Monday to talk commercial real estate and prop tech. We will dive deep into the different asset classes, discuss the market, talk about the new and exciting technologies, meet key people in the industry, and get some inspiration. Let's begin. Hey guys, before we start, I just want to point out the six best secrets for commercial real estate. It's a free download. Go to the text side and you will find it. It has absolutely great information, completely free, how to become a landlord, how to determine the value of a property, or creative financing for commercial real estate. All of it is completely free. Go download it. Also, I want to point out my CRE crash course. It's a two-week must-have program with a must-have skills for commercial real estate, like investment strategies, the must-have financial terms, how a deal is done. Go take a look at it. Go to the text side and click on the link. And now let's continue with our program. Hey, guys. How are you? This is Ishai Breslauer, your host of the CRE Shark Eye Show. Hope you guys are doing great. Today we have with us Brian Burke. Brian, thanks so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate that. 100%. Listen, you guys probably are, are curious what we're going to talk about. I can, I can tell you that uh, Brian is the CEO of a company called Praxis Capital, and he deals mostly with multifamily, and, um, and we're going to hear all about it. I'm so curious to hear what type of markets he's getting into penetrating, uh, investing in, and the type of activity that he is involved in. Brian, uh, you know what? Before we even start, to dig into your fascinating story and the juicy stuff. If you could tell us like two minute elevator pitch about, uh, you know, what your company does. Yeah, we're a, we're a national multifamily operator. So we acquire uh, apartment complexes all across the United States, uh, you know, with the objective of making improvements to them and uh, driving revenue uh, holding them for a few years and then ultimately reselling them for a profit. So our business is all investor driven. So uh, basically we assemble capital from passive investors and we use that capital to acquire uh, these properties and uh, deliver a return for our investors. Pretty simple model. That's it. That's what the topic is. And we have a lot to talk about, meaning it's, uh, you already gave me a few angles about what we're going to talk about, whether it's, uh, you know, the strategies, the investor types, et cetera, et cetera, and how you guys operate. Very interesting. You know what, before we get into this whole thing, how did you get into this beautiful game called real estate? Uh, I think I was just uh, young and dumb and didn't know any better. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I got started when I was, I was 20 years old when I got started in this business. And, you know, of course I'd read a bunch of books that said that uh, most uh, wealth in the world was generated through real estate. And of course, when you're young, you think wealth sounds good and real estate's the way to do it. So that'll be my career path. Right. So, uh, yeah, I set out at a really young age to try to figure out how to how to invest in real estate. And I, I had a kind of a slow start because, uh, you know, I didn't know anybody in real estate. I didn't know anything about real estate and I didn't have any money to invest in real estate. So I figured, you know, hey, I had everything it takes. Let's give it a go. You know, <laughs> sounds good. Tell me something. You know what? Going into that, you said, OK, I want to get into real estate. But what was the first dip? Meaning, what, 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 what was the first action you, you've taken? 
Well, the first the first actual deal I got was a, a single family house I bought to rent out, and I was able to get it with no money down because I uh, I found a lender that would uh, would give me a loan, uh, which was an incredible accomplishment at 20 years old, and uh, and I found a seller who would carry back the down payment, so I literally was able to close out taking any money out of my own pocket, and that became my very first real estate deal, and uh, I think. Looking back on it, it was probably a disaster because I didn't really had no idea what I was doing, and uh, you know, and it. it but it was a, a, an excellent, excellent learning experience, and kind of drove me to the point where I really learned. Okay, I, first thing first, you have to buy right. Second thing, you have to finance right. Third thing, you have to manage right. And if you can do all those things, you can make money in this business. If you do them all wrong, then you don't make anything. So I didn't make anything off my first deal. <laughs> Tell me something. What year was that? 1989. 1989. Wow. That's a long time ago. I know, right? Tell yeah, me yeah, about yeah. it. It nice. seems like and it you was look, yesterday. And you, look, and you look very young. Thank God. You look very, <laughs> nice. you look very young. Tell me something. Uh, looking forward, was that the one and only deal that you've made as meaning single family? I've actually done over 700 single family investments. Whoa. So <laughs> that became that became just the first one and after that uh you know you know nothing like having a bad experience to addict you, right? Because you know then you say, "Well, I'm going to do it right next time." Yeah. And so it took me, you know, three or four times to figure out exactly how to do it right. And once you do it right, then it's really addicting because then you're like, "Okay, I've found a business model here. I can do this and I can I can replicate this." And that's exactly what we did. So yeah, in the, in the last past, what, 32 years, I've uh, bought over 750 properties and at least 700 of those have been single family homes. So you've been independent since then, meaning you've done it all on your own, basically? Yeah, I started out, uh, I started out all by myself. I was the lone ranger, you know, chief cook and bottle washer, as they say. I mean, I, I literally did everything, including like renting a U-Haul to go to the store to get appliances and bring them and drop them off. Incredible. I mean, I, I literally did everything in the very beginning. And then as we grew, you know, of course, I, I uh, found the value of bringing in additional help. And so, you know, started hiring people and, and then built the business into a fairly decent sized business where we were doing about a, you know, a dozen or two dozen houses a year and we were buying, fixing and reselling them. And uh, that business was going great. And then all of a sudden we had the, well, what we call the great financial collapse, you know, 2000s six, seven, eight, nine, uh, where real estate values tumbled and, you know, dramatically. And what was interesting about that time is uh, it was like getting an avalanche of deal flow all of a sudden. And all this, you know, now I took this, you know, 10 to 20 house a year business and instantly made it a hundred house a year business at the flip of a switch. And, you know, I did that mostly because, A, I had the deal flow because of what was going on in the economy, but B, I recognized the value of a partnership. And if I could bring in the right people, uh, we could do incredible things. And, and that's exactly what happened. Tell me something. Did the 2008 recession, like, did you get hit with the existing properties that you had? Yeah, to a certain extent, I did. And uh, some I did and some I didn't. It was interesting. Uh, you know, the thing about the flipping business is you're in for a very short period of time. So what you're most exposed to is pricing movement during your 
uh, holding period. But what, what amplifies that is when that switch happens and you still have properties in your inventory. And so, you know, I had, I was kind of operating on two different uh, modes at that, at that time. And I had one business, it was all investor funded. I'd raised money from some of my ex coworkers to buy, fix and resell houses. Then on the other hand, I would take money that I would make and I would make my own investments in other real estate, like commercial real estate and that kind of stuff. And so at the end of the day, like all of the stuff I bought for myself, all like dropped in value. It was a total pain. It like made my life miserable. Uh, but all of the stuff I was buying with investor money, it was kind of like it was still doing good. And, and so we would, you know, we would lose money on maybe a quarter of the properties that we bought. Uh, we broke even on maybe a quarter of the properties we bought and we made money on half the properties we bought. So at the end of the day, we were still profitable despite all that was going on and all kind of the craziness. But, Can you explain I mean, why, what was the smart move that you've made, you know, as to begin with that brought you to actually stay profitable? That's yeah, the smart move, yeah, so the smart move I made was twofold. One is I kind of saw this coming to an extent and, and really scaled back our business just before the collapse. So it, when I was doing, you know, two dozen houses a year in 2004 and five, by 06, I was doing like four. I mean, I really had scaled back. So fortunately, when the market, when the, see when the market is like going up or it's level and then it goes into a, a down cycle, that happens with the flip of a switch. It takes a while for values to climb, but it takes an instant for them to fall. And so when I had, I didn't want to have inventory when that switch happened from good market to bad market, because I knew that that would be a bloodbath. So fortunately, I didn't have much, you know, we weren't doing a lot. And then the market switched. Once it switched and I could see that it switched, and I at least knew what direction it was going. Then it was really simple. All you have to do is buy the property at such a discount that you know that even if its current value falls by 10% in the next four months, you still are going to come out okay. And we were able to buy like that. We couldn't get a lot of product like that, but we got enough to stay in business at least. That's amazing. And once you've done that, you bought, you said, 100, 100, like the deal flow started coming and then you started buying. So how did that go? Yeah, that, that went incredibly well. Uh, we started really in earnest in about 2008. You know, by then the market had started to at least it was, I, I thought it was bottoming out. Other people thought it had further down to go. It turned out it was right. It was really bottoming out. And this is when we started buying like crazy. This is when we switched on, switched on the fire hose and we were, we were buying about a hundred houses a year and fixing them up and reselling. It was incredibly profitable. There was not a lot of competition. Uh, you know, there was still a lot of people that thought real estate was toxic. So they were avoiding it and we weren't avoiding it and we were making a killing. Uh, it was great for us as a business because we were getting a lot of press exposure. Uh, you know, we were written about, uh, we were on the front page of the real estate section of the San Francisco Chronicle. We were in the local nice. newspapers. We were mentioned in the uh, Wall Street Journal. And when that kind of stuff happens, you start to get recognized. And all of a sudden we were getting calls left and right from investors who were interested in, you know, kind of taking advantage of the next opportunity. And that's what really, you know, propelled our business and launched it forward. Tell me something. Okay, you're doing well with single family homes. Everything's going nice. And then you make the switch, obviously, because your business today is about multifamily. How did that come about? 
Yeah, that came about actually while I was still doing single family about 20 years ago. Uh, I, I had a couple rental houses and I really was interested in commercial real estate and I was interested in income property, but I didn't really know anything about it. So one of the uh, real estate agents that was selling a lot of my flip houses was a CCIM. That's a commercial real estate broker. It's a special designation for commercial real estate brokers. And I asked him, I said, you know, I'm interested in uh, learning about multifamily, you know, and I really don't know anything. So how do I find out? And he said, come into my office. I'll teach you everything you need to know. So I went in there. He sat me down for like a couple hours and basically ran me through what to look for in commercial real estate, how to read an income statement and, you know, Priceless. what to look for. Yeah, all of that stuff. And then, and then lo and behold, about a couple months later, he got a listing on a 16 unit apartment building. And I did a 1031 exchange. I sold two of my rental houses and I bought that 16 unit apartment building. That was my first uh, multifamily investment about 20 years ago. What so, size of a deal was it? 16 units. And it was like 600 grand, you know, it was like, you know, wow. nothing, you know, nothing. Wow. This was in California even, you know? And so, uh, that, that like, became, like good occupancy, meaning I'm assuming it was hundred percent occupied, wow. but the, the owner was like a long time owner. He'd never done anything to the property. You know, the units were needed to be fixed up. And, you know, I knew that I could go in and make some improvements and we could increase rents. And, and we did exactly that. And, uh, you know, that investment worked out really, really well. And, and so I, I figured like, I, I started doing that a little bit more. I did a couple more of my own individual multifamily investments. And then fast forward to this period we were just talking about a minute ago, where now all of a sudden we were getting recognized by investors for our single family fix and flip business. We had started up a, um, a buy to rent fund where we were buying, you know, we bought like 120 rental houses in the San Francisco Bay Area at the very bottom of the market. So we had done that. So we had built up this big base of investors. And I said, you know what? All these foreclosures, uh, they're everywhere right now, but in three or four years, they're going to be 100% gone. I mean, all this inventory is going to be burned through. Then what are we going to do? We know we've got all these clients now. We're raising tons of money. Uh, we'll have nowhere for any of these mo this, this money to go if we don't think about what's a more sustainable and scalable business model. And I thought about, you know, my experience in multifamily. I thought, why don't we just grow that side of the business? You know, that's something that you can always make work. You just move location, move property types, change strategy, uh, but it's a long-term sustainable and scalable business. And that's when we made the conscious decision to shift our focus more into multifamily investments. So when you do that and you were saying to yourself, okay, that's what I'm going for from now on. How do your investors react to that? They're used to single family investments. And all of a sudden comes Brian and says, hey, guys, uh, I have a new, uh, it's not a new concept, but I want to focus from now on on multifamily. And they probably, you know, it's a more complex asset class than single family in terms of educate, you know, the, ba the knowledge base is much higher, but you have to know a lot more, as you know. So how did they react to that? And what type of education you had to run through in order to, for them, in order to get them in? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was a bit of a training exercise. You're, you're absolutely right. Some people were apprehensive and said, you know, hey, I, I like the single family stuff. I don't know anything about this multifamily stuff. I don't want to invest. Uh, fortunately, we had uh, quite a few investors by that point. So the first deal that we did, we had to raise $600,000. So that wasn't all that difficult. It took us six weeks and we raised the $600,000 
Uh, and, you know, we had a lot of people that said no, but we had just enough that said yes. And it didn't take a lot of people to pull together that amount of money. But what was funny is like two weeks after we got awarded that deal, we got awarded a second deal. And the second one was much larger and we needed to raise two point, uh, I think it was 2.3 or $2.5 million. It was the yeah. biggest capital raise we'd ever would have had to do. And it was in a, you know, kind of a newer asset class to us, at least in the eyes of our investors who weren't used to it. And so we literally came right off the heels of this $600,000 capital raise and had to raise, you know, two and a half million. And it took us 18 months, 18 wow. months to raise that two and a half million dollars. And it was just, as you said, it was an exercise of having to train the investors on, you know, why this was a good plan. But hey, looking back, you know, what all it took to really grow our multifamily side was that first one was a big success. Uh, within 21 months, we had sold it and delivered a 43% return to our investors. And people started to quickly see we knew what we were doing and, and, and began to believe in not only in us, but also in the model. And, uh, you know, then we were able to start scaling that business. So it was a real slow ramp up at first. Very interesting. You know what? I'm just out of curiosity. You know, you just mentioned 18 months to raise capital. It just shows everybody that, you know, raising capital is not easy and you have to actually be persistent. You know, you just have to keep going, keep on it. The one question I have about it is that usually raising capital is, what is 60, 90 days. In the worst case, it's 30 days. In the rare case, it's 120 days. How did you get to 18 months? I was fortunate uh, in that my, my partner happened to have liquidity and was able to uh, come up with uh, the money we needed to close. And then as we raised the money, we basically just liquidated it right. out. Right. So right. we, we right. backfilled it. Without best. that, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. And we wouldn't have got a deal. You know, the seller would have ditched us, you know, after, you know, 60 or 90 days for sure. There's no way we could have done it in 18 months. But uh, I was fortunate uh, that my partner was able to bridge that gap. That's a great story. So fast forward to today. Um, what type of deals you guys do today? What type of multifamily deals you guys enter? So we're, we're doing mostly uh, uh, newer uh, multifamily properties, kind of stuff that's built uh, after 2000, you know, 1980 or newer is really kind of our minimum, but uh, most of the stuff we've been buying has been built, you know, 2000 or later, uh, you know, hundred units, B plus to a, a, a to B plus or A to, I'd say A to B minus. Okay. Uh, really. And maybe even some C plus if we can reposition it to a B, uh, hundred units and up, you know, our, our smallest deal right now, I think is 108 units. The largest one we've done was 540 units. Uh, so we're, we're, we're mostly uh, buying in the southern half of the U.S., Arizona to Florida and kind of everything in between, uh, you know, larger multifamily stuff. Price points kind of in that, I'd call it, you know, 20 to $50 million range generally. So tell me something. So going into these type of asset classes, and that's what I'm curious about, that's the type of strategy of what we call core plus, you know, to go into um, the less aggressive type of value add. Can you tell us a little bit you know, about this process, first of all, and also why do you want that asset class? Why do you want those type of properties? Why do you want that type of you know, 
move in your business and to give that to your investors? What got you to this? Well, you know, the thing about this business is you're always evolving, right? And so we evolved yep. from single family, you know, fix and flip to single family rentals to multifamily. And then within multifamily, we've evolved from kind of quick flips. You know, the first one we did was literally 21 months from closing to closing uh, to ones where, you know, we're holding for two or three years, maybe five years. Uh, but we're also evolving our product type. You know, when we first started that first property we did was a D plus probably maybe a C minus to D plus. Uh, it was rough. Uh, you know, we went in there and we repositioned it to a C plus at least. Uh, and we did really, really well. Uh, you know, the next property that we bought was like a B minus that we repositioned to a B plus. Uh, so we've kind of, we've done a lot of C product and we've kind of been there, done that and got the t-shirt. It's a, it's, it's a good business model, uh, but it does require uh, a higher degree of effort on a per property basis to keep those properties performing the way you would expect them to. Uh, whereas, you know, your A and B properties tend to be more steady and stable uh, we're at that point now, especially at this phase of the cycle, uh, I just don't want to take on more risk than is necessary. And so we're taking more of the low risk approach. Uh, there's a lot of multifamily operators out there that are shooting for the moon on returns. You know, their objective is to generate the highest return, uh, you know, and they'll do that by any means necessary. They'll buy higher risk properties, rougher neighborhoods. They'll use high leverage bridge financing, so they don't have to bring a lot of equity to the table. And they'll use all of those tools to amplify their returns. Our approach is kind of the opposite. You know, we're like, uh, you know, in, in retail, you have discount stores and you have high-end, you know, retailers, right? And so, you know, we look at uh, what we're doing is more the high-end retailer. We're, we're trying to appeal to the clientele that wants to invest their capital safely and be confident that we can ride out a recession without a lot of major bumps in the road. And I feel like your A and B properties are going to be the spot to do that. They're not as sexy. Maybe you don't have as much upward mobility, although I dispute that. I think we can get a lot of upward mobility if it's done right, uh, but we can do it with low leverage financing. That means putting a lot of money down and we can do really, really well. Now we're, we're never going to win the highest uh, return award amongst the uh, multifamily investment alternatives. Uh, but that's not what I, I feel like that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to deliver the highest return. I feel like I'm here to be the one place, you know, you can go where you are less likely to lose your money to start with and, and earn a good return, uh, but not take on as much risk. You know what? A lot of people talk about uh, why they're going, because that's a strategy that I heard a lot of people are, are actually implementing to go after A and B class, you know, right, the type of properties. Why? Because the pandemic taught us that those classes, those ask classes basically have the paying people, right? The tenants who actually pay because they're capable of continuing paying. And the less turbulence you had in those, obviously, in those type of uh, properties. And they obviously have less, uh, you know, the type of turnovers are very different. The type of management, that's what I want to ask you. Um, C-class type properties require a lot more work when you enter. When you enter the deal, when you make the acquisition, you come in, 
you need to do a lot of what you call the value add aspect from the stand, you know, from the, the renovation, the rehab point of view, right? But later on, the management aspect is not as complex, right? When it comes to B, especially A-class properties, the management aspect, you need to provide a lot more to your tenants. So what do you guys do? You guys manage yourselves, you hire a third-party management. How do you treat that aspect? Yeah, we, we do manage ourselves. Uh, we have our own management company. Uh, so we, we, we're able to handle the whole thing from start to finish. You know, it's funny you say that because our, our experience has actually been almost the opposite. Tell where me. On the, on the C-class properties, we found those to be the most management intensive. In fact, uh, we had, you know, in our portfolio of about 3,000 units, uh, we had a couple of C properties and then we had a lot of B properties. And we, our team was spending about three quarters of their resources on one quarter of our assets. And those were the C deals. And wow. spending one quarter of their time on three quarters of our assets, which were the A's and B's. And, and so like, it, it's funny because, and you mentioned, you know, non-payers and that sort of stuff. We had over a million dollars in unpaid rent across our class C portfolio. Wow. Uh, but we have class A properties in our portfolio where I kid you not, we'll close out the month with less than $1 delinquent, less than $1. And it's because somebody didn't round off their check right or something like that. You know, that's how that is the difference between, you know, the, the A, A and B class and the C class properties, you know, especially during COVID. It's funny. I used to go to conferences. I used to tell people all the time, you know, the C properties are the ones where you have the most trouble in a, in a downturn. If there's an economic hiccup, the C classes perform the worst and everybody's like, Oh no, no, no. You know, the C classes do great because the A people move to B, the B people move to C, the C does great because it's always full. It's like, no, that's not how it works. The C people don't pay and then they don't leave. And then you have to evict them. And then if the government puts an eviction moratorium in place, you can't evict them. So now you're stuck with people who don't pay month after month after month after month. And that's how we ended up with over a million dollars in unpaid, uncollected rent across our yeah. C portfolio. So, you know, with the A's, you are correct. A's have a higher expectation of level of service. But it's a lot easier to have a team in place to serve the residents to make sure that they're well taken care of than it is to have a security force in place to be chasing around gun uh, drug dealers and gun runners all over the property, uh, which we were doing on one of our C-class properties. Wow. You know what? Great. I, I love this conversation. This is very, very insightful. Um, you've mentioned right beforehand, you said you guys don't take much leverage you put more emphasis on the equity part, right? On the equity side. Yeah. What type of leverage you guys take and why do you, why do you come to this philosophy? It's very interesting. Yeah, you know, we're, if you look at our loan to value ratio across our portfolio, we're probably 50%, give or take, uh, which is extraordinarily low. Uh, when we acquire a property, we, we limit it to 75% of cost and we generally stay under 75% of purchase price. And actually most of our properties are under 70% of the purchase price. Uh, so sometimes we're putting as much as 50% down, uh, but we're never putting less than 25% down. And, you know, we're, gosh, I see a lot of these deals going out at 90% leverage. And, and the, the philosophy to me, what's behind this is, 
I want to have uh, a very conservative leverage point so that I know if there's an economic hiccup and our revenue stream is disrupted, uh, that we can at least make our debt service so that we can come out the other side uh, unscathed. And, and, and I've lived this lesson in real time. Uh, you know, in the 08 collapse, I had bought a multifamily property. I got 100% financing. I had a property that was wow. in foreclosure. Uh, I bought the property for half of what the guy before me bought it for. Uh, so the lender, the loan actually was greater than the property's current value. So I told wow. the lender, I said, I will buy this from you. If you'll finance it, write down, I'll assume the loan that's in default if you'll write the balance down to the purchase price. And they agreed. And so now I, I had this property with 100% financing. I had no money down. I just raised enough money to start doing renovations. I did renovations. Things were going great. I got it from like 70% occupied to 99% occupied. And then like a week later, Bear Stearns collapses and Lehman oh. Brothers collapses and jobs are getting shed left and right. And all next thing I knew, the property was 60% occupied. And I used to joke, this is a class C property. And I used to joke and I would say, half the units are empty and the other half aren't paying. And, <laughs> and that's almost about how bad it was. And it was so bad to the point that I had only enough money left over to pay the operating expenses, you know, the utility bills, the yeah. payroll uh, and all that, but I had no money left over for debt service. And so, you know, I had a decision to make, you know, do I give this property back to the bank? What do I do? And I made the decision that I said, you know what, hey, this is like a short-term problem. This isn't gonna last very long. I'll just make the mortgage payment out of my own pocket. So I wrote a $15,000 check for the mortgage payment out of my own pocket so that I could at least get to the next month. Well, the next month came along and guess what? It wasn't any better. So I wrote another $15,000 check to wow. pay the mortgage payment out of my own pocket. I did that for over three years. I made that mortgage payment out of my own pocket, 15,000 oh a month for over three years. I ended up having more money in this deal than my investors did. And the lesson, finally, long story short, we ultimately ended up selling the property and actually made money. But, but the, the lesson here was, don't over leverage because when you're over leveraged, it can absolutely kill even the best laid business plan if the economy doesn't give you a tailwind the whole the whole way. So we just don't do that anymore. You know, now it's like conservative leverage is the rule of the day for me. I don't ever want to have to write $15,000 checks again. And now our mortgage payments are like $200,000 a month. So, so they're even bigger now. So I don't want to be writing those kinds of checks. So we try to stay uh, very conservative. 100%. You know what? I'll tell you a little story. I was once sitting at a dinner near a very, very old man uh, who passed away actually the past year. Uh, you probably will know the name. Name is Jerry Hines. Okay. Uh, and um, Hines meaning real estate, this huge corporation. And uh, I didn't know it's him in the beginning. And then later on, someone introduced and I said, oh my gosh, this is him. It was very old already. But I asked him, what was your secret sauce? Meaning obviously he started from scratch and built a huge empire. And he said to me, I don't over leverage. Our leverage goes up to 50%. And I said, so how did you get, meaning obviously you're talking about mega properties that need tons of equity. So he said, I said, to raise that type of equity, it's a real burden, meaning you're talking about sometimes billions. So he said, we have great equity partners. And uh, that was a great lesson. So that fits what you just, you know, what you just uh, told us. That's a great story. I love that. 
tell me something in terms of dealing with with uh, investors. So we understood the property side and how you operate, etc. And to find the properties, obviously, you told us about the locations. In terms of your investors, uh, creating re the relationships, maintaining the relationships. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, we I have a senior vice president of uh, investor relations here at the company, and uh, you know, he's uh, he's been doing this a long, long, long time. You know, we're the old guys in the in the group here. You know, and so uh, he takes really good care of our investors and and uh, handles all investor communication. But there's one thing he doesn't do, and that's quarterly reporting. Uh, I take it upon myself to personally uh, assemble our quarterly reports so that I can make sure that we're delivering a clear message to our investors uh, that, uh, that tells them everything I want to make sure that they're aware of, which is pretty much everything. Uh, and I think that is the key. The key is keeping investors informed, uh, delivering bad news as well as good news. And just, you know, this is an, it is what it is world, right? And you just have to be honest with people and tell them if the property is having difficulty, if it's not cash flowing, if you're not performing to objectives, admit it, fess up, tell them what you're doing about it. And, uh, and, you know, and then implement that plan. And I think that's, that's served us really well. We had, uh, unbeknownst to me, one of our investors runs this, large investor group. Uh, and he uh, wrote an article about us and called us the gold standard for uh, syndication investment reporting. And it was a, wow. enormously flattering. We didn't find out about the article until after the fact, but I was very proud of that fact because we put a lot of effort into uh, delivering information uh, to people that's meaningful and keeping people informed. I think that's the key uh, to any business that's in the business of, uh, of invest, uh, you know, handling investor money is to make sure that you're keeping people in the loop. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea. And uh, you know what? This is such a great lesson. You have to take care of your investors and you have to make sure that your information is clear and it's honest and it's as, uh, how do you say, as crisp as can be. People want to know what's going on. I love that. Tell me something. What tip can you give the, you know, the newcomers who are coming into the business and they want to start getting into multifamily as an operator? I'm not talking about passive guys. Obviously, if you guys are passive, you're hearing Brian, you can definitely join them. Sounds like a very solid business uh, to, to invest in. I'm talking about the operator, the young Brian Burke. What can you tell them? Well, I would tell them that in order for them to raise money from others, uh, those other people have to trust them. No one is going to give you your money unless they trust you. And, you know, there's this, this old saying that says, you know, if you find the deal, the money will come. Uh, and, and right here today on this podcast, I am going to tell people that is 1000% false. Uh, it is not true. If you find the deal, the money will not come. The money will only come to you if people trust you uh, and, and will invest with you because they trust you. So I think that's the big key is that investors need to trust three things. Firstly, if, you're, if you want to be a real estate operator, your investors need to trust real estate. It's kind of outside of your control, but if they don't trust it, you can educate them. 
the second is they need to trust you. If they don't trust you, they're not writing you that check. And the third is they have to trust that investment, that deal that you're bringing to them. If they don't trust the deal, even if they like real estate and they like you, they're not investing. So where people usually fall short is it's in one of these three areas. They either, in the first one, they go to investors that, that don't wanna invest in real estate, and then they wonder why they can't find any investors. Well, they, it's because you're, you're speaking to the wrong audience, basically, or you're not educating the audience appropriately. That's the reason. The second failure point is people, uh, they, they go to people that wanna invest in real estate, and then they wonder why they won't invest money with them. Well, that's because they don't trust you. And it, it, it's not a slight against you. It just means that you didn't build your case. And so to build your case, you need to show people a track record. You need to show them a history. You need to show them what you've learned, what you've done, what you know. And if you don't show them, they're not going to write you that check. So if you're, if, you're, if you're stopping short right there, what you've got to do is you've got to build up that resume. And, and so this is where a lot of people go wrong is they say like, okay, uh, I've never done real estate before. I'm going to go out and buy a 200-unit apartment building. I'm going to raise $20 million. I'm going to go to accredited investors at the Chamber of Commerce meeting, and I'm going to go raise my money there. It's flat out not going to happen uh, because you don't have any track record, and you know nobody's going to trust you with their money if you've never done this before. So that means start small. It means go buy a single-family house, fix it up, flip it, sell it, produce a tangible result, show people, this is what I bought it for. This is what, how much we spent on it. This is what we sold it for. This is how much we made. You can show them that. You can use that to leverage, to get maybe investors so you can go do the same thing to a duplex, then go do the same thing to a fourplex, then go do the same thing to a 10 unit, a 20 unit. Build your way up and build trust slowly and incrementally. If you wanna to try to bypass that, the only way to bypass that, the only fast lane is you have to bring in a partner or join up with somebody that has a track record that you can piggyback onto to use that to get people's trust. Exactly. So you've got to take one of those two routes. <clears throat> if you don't have a track record or can't show people a track record, they're just not going to invest with you. What a great tip. Tell me something. I know you don't have a crystal ball because I don't see it behind you or next to you. Um, what do you think? Where are we going with the market today? Boy, the market is really acting weird uh, lately, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yes, it is. So, yeah, you know, we're, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing demographic movement, which is causing runaway inflation in housing in some areas. And so this is what's really interesting is uh, two years ago, even, even two years ago, if you were in San Francisco and you had a great job in San Francisco, and you wanted to move to Phoenix, Arizona, the first thing that you would do is you would go down to Phoenix, you would find a new job. Once you got your new job, you'd go back, you quit your old job in San Francisco, you make your move down to Phoenix, and now you live in a lower cost area and you got a new job there. Chances are you're making less there than you made in San Francisco, but it's no big deal because the housing costs are a lot less, cost of living is a lot lower. Those rules have been rewritten. Now, uh, post-pandemic, you don't have to quit your old job. You can, you can move from San Francisco to Phoenix, keep your job at Facebook or Tesla or wherever you're making $250,000 a year and move to Phoenix where the rents one third and housing costs are one third of what they are in San Francisco. And you still get to make the same old wage. So now what's happened is- you And pay less like, taxes. 
and pay less taxes. So now you've got areas like Phoenix, Vegas, even now Albuquerque. Uh, and then on the East Coast, you've got places like Florida. Huntsville, uh, Atlanta, Florida, everywhere in Florida. Any Pick a market in Florida, any market in Florida. Yeah. Uh, Carolinas, you know, the, uh, pick a market in the Carolinas. You've got all of those markets where you've got people leaving L.A., San Francisco, New York, and they're going to those markets. Chicago, yeah, yeah, all the big Chicago, cities. yep, and they're driving up housing costs in those markets, and they're driving it up for two reasons. One, they're increasing demand like crazy because everybody's going there at the same time and construction hasn't kept up. And second, they're bringing high-wage jobs from those other areas with them to those new areas. Yeah, deep pockets, and they're giving those markets a lot of runway. So what I'm seeing is an inflation in housing costs that's amplified in those markets, uh, those lower cost markets, and, and that's causing runaway rent growth. And I think we're going to see that continue for the foreseeable future, at least for the next year to two. Beautiful analysis. Beautiful analysis. Um, so you guys listened, and you guys heard, I love your strategy, by the way. It's a great strategy, lower leverage, going for A-class, B-class properties, core plus type of uh, properties with more occupancy or less turbulence. Uh, and you know what? The, I always say the newbies, the newcomers are always saying, listen, I want 17, 25 IRR, blah, blah, blah. They, people need to understand that the rosy stuff sometimes is not so rosy in the end of the way. And those who built wealth, those investors and operators who built wealth, built wealth slowly, especially when it comes to real estate. Meaning if you want the fast track, you can go for startups and uh, maybe it's great. And uh, maybe a great development or, you know, selling condos within, you know, down the road could work for you. And that's great. Meaning I was involved in that too. It could be a lot of money. The risk is going together with, with, with the, the high uh, presumable reward when it comes to those things that are more conservative. Um, people need to understand that the strategies are incredible and those companies like Brian's company are, are really fascinating. Uh, Brian, why can't I tell you? You know what, tell everybody how they can find you guys and uh, talk to you guys if they want to invest with you, learn about you, give you deals, whatever it is. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of ways, you know, if you want to learn more about all the things I know about passive investing, uh, check out my book, The Hands-Off Investor. It's available uh, on Amazon or in bookstores or at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. Uh, they can also learn more about Praxis Capital by going to our website. It's praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Or they could follow me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke. Beautiful. You guys can see the links above or below, wherever you are. If you're listening to the audio, go to the, to the text side of things and click over there. Brian, what can I tell you? Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know what? Um, early morning there in California, a new day, and I wish you all the best. Really. Thank, thank you. you so much. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. You guys take care. I'll see you in the next show. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.